Hello and welcome back to our Gilmore Girls podcast, Coffee with a Shot of Cynicism. Gilmore Girls is the coffee and we're the shot of cynicism. I'm Jeffrey. I'm Lenny. And this week we'll be discussing episode three of season four, The Hobbit, The Sofa, and Digger Styles. But first, but first, um, we wanted to bring up a topic um, that's near and dear to my heart. I feel like I'm Star Jones going rogue when she left The View. Someone's been on my heart for a little bit. Um, (laughs) The legendary Miss Britney Spears. So um, as I'm sure people on social media have seen, uh, there was a documentary that came out um, already over a month ago now, or almost a month ago. Um, Basically chronicling the legal battle she's currently facing to be free of the conservatorship that she's been under since 2008 at the hands of her father. So um, it's a whole story, um, as I'm sure most of our listeners would know, that um, she suffered a very public uh, nervous breakdown in 2007, which then led her to be placed under this conservatorship, which gave um, all, basically every free, you know, freedom she had was given away to her father and her lawyer, I believe. And then, so there's a whole drama of a bunch of people have stepped down from the conservatorship and she's since tried to get, basically get under the wing of her father, under the thumb of her father. Um, And it's a very sad story. And especially considering the way that uh, pop culture and the media has treated Britney over the course of her career. So that's what we wanted to talk about a little bit. And you know, vis-a-vis 2000s gender politics that we've also discussed on our podcast, would you say? Yeah, all the time. <laughs> <laughs> so we I wanted to... to bring it into conversation <laughs> all the time. Um, so, you know, Britney Spears came of age in the early 2000s when Gilmore Girls was on the air. So we've also, you know, discussed and analyzed the same pop culture. Um, so I wanted to share this article that I read, you know, there's been a lot of different articles about Brittany over the last month, and a lot have been really, really good. So perhaps I'll share some on our Twitter page later this week. Um, but this one I wanted to read in particular because it's by um, a writer who I really love. Her name is Auntie Donahue, and she also has an essay collection called Nobody Cares that's really good, and you should all go check that out. Um, so she also writes about pop culture and different things a bunch of different things. And this this was for um, a column she does for CBC Arts called Anniversaries, which is a bi-weekly column that explores and celebrates the pop culture that defined the 90s and 2000s and the way it affects us now. And then she writes, and of course, a few personal anecdotes along the way. So that sounds pretty much like our podcast, basically. (laughs) So this article is called, Why Did It Take Us So Long to Finally Apologize to Britney Spears? With the subtitle, We've All Been been Complicit in in Relishing Celebrities' Suffering. It's Time to Take a Hard Look in the Mirror. And that's also, um, you know, what we were talking about a few weeks ago with cancel culture and everything. So I thought it was very apropos. So I thought I would share it with everybody. If you've lived through them or have read anything I've written before, you're aware of how terrible the 2000s were. Super low-rise jeans were uniform. Songs like Save a Horse, Ride a Cowboy were celebrated. And we treated Britney Spears and most of her contemporaries like, like absolute shit by using their struggles with addiction, mental health, and body image as a way to make ourselves feel somehow superior, particularly by enabling the gossip media industry to reach its peak through tearing down celebrities and reveling in their humiliation. 
We were all complicit. I know I was. As Britney's star rose higher and higher, I started resenting the attention she got from boys that I liked and the ease with which she seemed to move through the world. Our four-year age difference, our four-year age difference felt like centuries, especially since I lacked the charisma and allure she exhibited so flawlessly. I only just graduated to, swear, to wearing spaghetti straps and built-in bras. She danced with a snake and exuded pure sexuality. She made me feel like a child. Which is why it was easy to hate her. Since most media-based conversations focus on her sex appeal, there was a pronounced lack of discourse around why we begun sexualizing the singer when she was a teenager and why the status of her virginity was any of our business. So instead of trying to pinpoint the source of my resentment, I began to villainize her. She was everything I wasn't and, that, and I felt that made her wrong. The public role she'd been forced into wasn't of concern to me. She was a real musician. She wasn't a real musician or a real artist. And as far as I cared, her existence in the spotlight made her a fair game for any and all criticisms by me and everybody else. Of course, that was par for the course in the early 2000s. Pop stars like Britney and Christina Aguilera weren't awarded control over their personas or professional tra trajectories. And when they broke from the squeaky clean images of their early days, they were viciously and aggressively slut-shamed as if they weren't allowed to grow out of their early teens or to begin to embrace their own sexuality. And I was far from the only one who indulged in the perverse speculation and judgment that revolved around these young women. As the decade progressed, so did the prevalence of outlets like TMZ and Perez Hilton, whose payroll hinged on ripping apart famous people in a bid to leave them powerless and to fuel our own resentments. Relishing and exploiting the downfall of young women was a, was a cottage industry, one the majority of us helped sustain. By the time Britney released her fourth album, 2003's In the Zone, she graduated from teen dream and agreed to hypersexualized target of judgment and ridicule. As the media circus unraveled over the next few years, she eventually experienced a public and very alarming meltdown in 2007, going so far as to shave her head in the midst of trying to escape paparazzi. To think of what she must have been feeling in that moment was heartbreaking and rage-inducing, almost as upsetting as it was to remember the way that so many of us delighted in her near demise. By 2007, I'd grown out of my Britney disdain. I liked her music, and I came to feel guilty about making shaving head jokes. As whatever she was experiencing, it felt much bigger than the snippets we were being fed by the new blog machine. But then I'd log on to PrezHilton.com to, to consume as much celebrity gossip and as many crude drawings scribbled over famous young women as possible. My need to feel in the know eclipsed any personal empathy I felt about what was happening to Britney Spears, and I told myself it was fine because famous women weren't real women, that it was okay that they were millionaires and experienced a level of adoration most of us would never know, that it was fair to comment on the thighs of a teen star or the desperate look in Britney's eyes as she hit the hood of a car with an umbrella. How else would I ever feel so close to pop stars or actresses? How else would I be able to, fit, how else would I be able to sift through their ups and downs to create ideas of who they were as a person? How else was I supposed to learn everything about them in order to judge them? By now, we finally started to, to understand how much damage was caused by the rise of celebrity bloggers across the 2000s and beyond. We've also begun to grasp the severity of Britney's experience under the sole light bulb hanging from the ceiling of the media who covered and interrogated her. With the recent, with the recent acceleration of the Free Britney movement and the documentary Framing Britney Spears, we also know that since the events of 2007, she's been trapped under the conservatorship of her father and continues to be monitored legally by appointed higher-ups who don't, who don't allow her the freedoms all people should be awarded. And we know that we are partially responsible for making her life hell. So why did it take us so long to finally start learning from and beginning to make amends for our shameful behavior? Well, we were all selfish, and we still are. Recent apologies issued by Prez Hilton and Justin Timberlake for their roles in Britney's story 
allude to droplets of personal growth, but the amount of time it took us, it took for each to be issued suggests that they were made as part of a public relations strategy and not genuine concern. This, to be sure, is still a step in the right direction, even if we're only changing the game at a, at a glacial pace. Since Britney's heyday, we've learned to be more empathetic to the experiences of, and mental health of famous people. But we're still thirsty for any kind of spectacle. We want to know about and then judge celebrities every move. And we especially don't want to register that, we're, that what we're witnessing may be the mark of some kind of crisis, mainly because if we did that, we would have to feel guilty about making a person's real life our own entertainment. Social media has only made this dynamic more complicated. The rise of Instagram and Twitter has given us access to celebrities' personal lives, but with each post shared, it's easier to believe that this insight is something we're entitled to. There's a level of privilege that weaves itself through, through fans' comments and interactions, with some commenters going so far as to viciously tear down a celebrity's looks, weight, or romantic choices. Arguably, the current social media dynamic has replaced the traditional blog and paparazzi frenzy of yesteryear. And the effects of this toxicity are evident when public figures choose to delete their social media accounts altogether or issue blanket statements demanding change. The truth is, stars are not just like us. Celebrities, especially women, experience an entirely different reality than the rest of us do. And we can't possibly understand the effects of being dissected in the press and scrutinized for even the most basic day-to-day -day tasks. We especially can never imagine suffering a mental health crisis and having millions of strangers make it a punchline. It's impossible to wrap our heads around being asked about the status of our virginity by a grown man during a press conference with the eyes of the world watching. Frankly, in the same way, it's still nearly impossible to fathom such levels of wealth and privilege. It's just as inconceivable to imagine grappling with the cruel undersides of superstardom. But this time we do know better. I know that I choose to be some, someone who indulged in the meanness of, of 2000s era celebrity gossip and that so many of us did because it made us feel powerful and in control. And that means we all played a part in everything Britney Spears went through. The only way we can begin to make up for it now is to make a concerted effort to act with kindness and empathy. Perhaps it's time that we follow the advice of that Chris Crocker video we all mocked back when we were assholes. Leave Britney alone. Thoughts? Yeah, a yeah. lot of thoughts. A lot of thoughts? A lot of thoughts. Um, I don't remember. So first of all, I don't remember what my reaction um, to Britney Spears's mental health breakdown was the whole shaving her head, the umbrella thing. I don't remember what my reaction was. Genuinely don't remember. Mm -hmm. So I'm not going to sit here and say like, oh, I was always on her side. Like, I genuinely do not remember. I mm -hmm. know what my reaction is now. And that's obviously that that was heartbreaking. And that was obviously a cry for help. And paparazzi wouldn't leave the poor girl alone. Yeah. Um, you know, so I think anyone under those circumstances would be, um, you know, stressed to say the least. Stressed, um, yeah. Yeah, stressed, depressed. She was going through postpartum depression as well. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so the fact that we as a society mocked her for that is just so heartbreaking to me. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, I think about it now and 2021 and like forget the conservatorship forget like just just the fact that we mocked her that on its own is heartbreaking mm -hmm. um, and then when you add all this shit of like a grown woman not being able to be autonomous and like be her own person that's an added layer of disgust that I don't know why we're not talking about enough mm -hmm. like we just started talking about it now you know it's not like it's new 
Um, and yeah, I have thoughts on the whole Justin Timberlake thing, and I have thoughts on the notion where the author says celebrities were not real people, like she didn't see them as real people. Um, like I, to me, Justin Timberlake's trash. <laughs> like because in, in the sense that like your apology is not genuine, sir. There's that. Three months. Yeah. Three months before this apology, he was still talking about Britney Spears. Yes, and, and I'd also like, to, but I'd also like to point out before we start, before we you know we we go in with our fangs on Justin Timberlake, I'm not and I'm not defending him. I have never once defended him in this scenario, um, but I do like. I do have to admit that I do like how everyone is kind of cluing in a bit more to the fact that Justin Timberlake has always been trash. Um, <laughs> Because I find, um, and I'm thinking specifically of one of my aunts, uh, you know, because she, we, she and I have argued this to death. Um, uh, you know, he really, what he did was garbage and he never took it. He never took responsibility for it. And he's not really doing that now, but he's kind of making it seem like he is. Yeah, to me, it's just like a fake apology Mm-hmm. And not just from him, from Perez Hilton too. Like you're telling me, Perez Hilton didn't know what he was doing was wrong. You're Perez, telling me- Perez Hilton issues a fake ass apology every other day. Yeah, like, but you're te- like you're telling me TMZ doesn't know that when they chase people around and yell at them, that's not wrong. Mm. Like, come on, come on, you're all trying to save face right now. And I don't think you've seen the the document the the film. I haven't seen it yet. We were when we were discussing, um, you know, the fact that we were going to be talking about this. I was like, "Oh, great! It's going to give me time to see it." But unfortunately, life has happened, and I haven't had a chance to see it. Mm-hmm. And the more, the more stuff that comes out about this, um, the more I'm like, I of course want to see it because I think it's important that we're all aware of it. But also, like, I I don't have it in me. <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. Like, it's really, really hard just reading about it. So I can't, like, you know, like, oh, poor me. But I'm just, like, I'm not I'm not in the right headspace right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, as somebody who also still struggles with a lot of mental health issues, um, nowhere near as close to what Britney Spears was going through for sure. But, I mean, it's just, it's, like, I don't even know what to say. <laughs> and, like... I- I know, I know exactly what you mean, because even I, like, who, I've been a fan of Britney Spears since elementary school, like, basically as long as I can remember, mm-hmm. um, and even I, who have, who's had, pretty much had my finger, like, on the pulse of her life story and everything, even everything that was going on with the conservatorship before it became a legal battle, and, you know, front page news again, like, I was pretty much in the know, like, I was aware of everything that, that they said in the documentary, none of it was news to me, really, but having it presented and laid out for me in that format and talking to people about it and their takes, it's just like, it made me sick to my stomach. It's just terrible what how she was treated. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was, you, and you'll see when you eventually you do watch the documentary, there's one part that everybody on Twitter um, just kept bringing, like, bringing back and talking about because it's just the worst. They're, they're interviewing one of the paparazzi uh, who was, you know, basically following her 24-7 in the Correct. mid-2000s. Yeah. Um, and he, like, he they were they were interviewing him and basically, like, poking holes in his defense. And he says he says something to the effect of, like, they, they ask, 
didn't Britney ever say to leave her alone? She's, he And he said something like, um, well, she did, but she said, like, leave me alone for that day, not forever. Great, thanks. You're a wonderful human being. Like, um, I'm pretty sure if Shara said, leave me alone, it didn't mean, like, leave me alone for today. I mean, it meant stop following me all the what, time. Like, what do people think is going to happen when you follow somebody around, yell at them, almost ram them with your car? Like, what do you think is going to happen? And it's and still, and honestly, what still makes me sick to my stomach is that the, the pictures of that were taken of Britney Spears with her shaved head when she attacked that man's car with an umbrella are still so easy to find on the internet and just makes yeah. me like like I'm sorry I don't think we're I don't think we're ever going to come full circle or come or rise above our the collective pop culture's actions in that whole situation until those pictures are not read, readily found on the internet I don't think that'll ever happen personally but I don't think we'll ever rise above until that happens yeah I'm just and when I say, like, what do you think is going to happen for me? It's just another way of saying, like, you know, you're trash. <laughs> like, yeah. you know what you're doing is wrong. And that's the problem that I have. That, that's the problem I, ha- I have with this, like, fake remorse. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like, we had to. It ha- It took you 15 years. The same thing with Justin Timberlake and Perez Hilton. Like, it took you 15 years. Well, not quite 15 years, but, you know. It took you more than a decade to say, I'm sorry, I was wrong. Mm. So that's why I don't believe it. I don't believe it. And also because, especially with Justin Timberlake, I'm not even going to dignify Perez Hilton with an analysis because trash. Um, But especially with Justin Timberlake, it's just like his, A, his response, of course, reads like more more like a public relations strategy. Like He did um, not write that, by the way. No, he did not. But it's, it reads like a PR stunt, just like Auntie Donahue says in her article. Yeah. And also, um, you can tell he did, you can tell he didn't write it because it was written by someone who was clearly in the know that holding men accountable for their garbage actions is trendy now. So we have to, um, you know, be aware of that. And that's there's a difference between apologizing because popular culture wants you to, and apologizing because you yourself are actually sorry. Exactly. And I think that's the the main issue I have with all of this is that. So because we were talking about cancel culture a lot this season and we've we've been talking about, um, you know, accountability, I think. So for me personally, I don't believe Justin Timberlake. Right. Nor do I. Nor do you, right? And there are people that are going to say, like, well, what else do you want from him? You know, at a certain point, you have to give him the benefit of the doubt. That's fine. Like, you guys can say he's genuine, whatever it is, you know. And there have been a lot of people coming out um, in support of him saying, well, better late than never and blah, blah, blah. For me, it's just, like, it's so transparent at this point that I don't understand how you don't see it. Like, he's obviously being forced to apologize, especially since three months before the documentary came out, he was still, like, using Britney's name for his own fame. Yeah. So, I'm still not over what happened with Janet Jackson also, by the way. (laughs) So, by the way, when we talk about accountability, there's also this thing that that I hate with Justin Timberlake that, you know, um... When that whole thing happened with Janet Jackson, it was more like, like there's taking accountability for your actions and admitting that it was wrong and a mistake. And then there's throwing the other person under the bus, you know? Yeah. So 
he basically threw Janet Jackson under the bus when really it w- it could have been over and done with if he had just said, yo, it was a mistake on both of our parts. It, it was a stunt that went wrong. Sorry. Instead, he chose the douchebag response. And to this day, like, is what, like, revered. I just, I can't. I can't. And see, that to me proves, no, I'm not going to say proves, because I don't know him personally, and I, I still don't feel 100% comfortable putting words in people's mouths. Yeah. But, like, that to me is why I don't personally believe that he was ever really sorry, because, I'm sorry, even in 2004, uh, he could have easily said, just as you said right now, uh, it was a stunt that went wrong, stop it, like, it was just as, much, just as much my fault as it was hers, or not even her fault, it was my fault, um... Yeah. Like he could have said that and he didn't. And there was, I mean, there's been a bunch of different interviews where he goes back and forth on it or. No, I think he just doubled down in the years, right? Like, I don't know if I'm, I'm off here, but I think like he's just doubled down. Doubled down for sure. I'm thinking of one interview I think he did with Oprah, like 2006, maybe. Um, For me will always be like, if you do something wrong, I respect you so much more. And by the way, this goes for celebrities and this goes for like, my colleagues, if you do something wrong, just say, oops, yeah, sorry, I fucked up. And I will respect you so much more. So for mm-hmm. me, when that happened, I was just like, just admit that you were wrong. Mm-hmm. And that's it. None of this, oh, well, you know, it was because we have, no, just say sorry. And that's it. Yeah. You know, so that's why for me, 15 years, better late than never. No, I'm sorry. I don't believe that shit. And it's not because it's not it's not even a matter of better late than never. It's the fact that in in 2002, 2004, whatever, whenever it was that Justin Timberlake first started profiting off of Britney and Janet Jackson, um, he saw like, again, I don't know him personally, but this, this is my take is that he saw an opportunity to have his own have his own star uh, rise above theirs by profiting off of their misfortune yeah. And he continued doing that. And then only now when it's trendy to be holding men accountable to their actions, does he apologize? That to me, that to me says why it's not genuine. Yeah. Because only but until it became she- unacceptable within popular culture and with the rise of Me Too and Time's Up and everything else, like only when that started to happen, did it not become as acceptable for men to be profiting off of women in that way. And that's and only when did that pressure start to come up did he apologize so don't tell me that it's genuine no i yeah that's the thing i never believed it was genuine and again this is not me saying let's cancel justin timberlake just for me no you know um and then i think another part of the article that is uh that we have to all remember and i'm glad that as horrific as you know the documentary has has shown us britney's life is I think it's really important. It's doing something really important. And that is reminding people that these people are people. Yes. (laughs) They're human beings. (laughs) They're not just um, something that you consume, like media that you consume. Mm -hmm. They're actual human beings. So I think a lot of the times that gets lost, um, whether it's a musician, an actor, an athlete, whatever it is, it's so easy to shit on people and just forget that there's there's that someone's daughter or mother or friend like whatever it is you know mm-hmm. so I think that's been a really big reminder for a lot of people yeah I'm glad that those conversations are kind of coming up 
And I like how in the in the article uh, she says like within the confines of 2000s culture, it was it was the thing to pretend or or convince yourself that stars aren't real people. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. especially in the like the tabloid gossip culture aspect of it, like that was what it was built on. Was yeah, they're not real people? They deserve this because they chose this life. Yeah. When in reality, it's just I don't give a fuck what life you've ch- quote unquote chosen. I'm still a human and there are basic human rights that we're all entitled to mm-hmm. um, and not being yelled at and like almost run over with a car and <laughs> just, like being able to mother your kids. You know, it's just, it's just, yeah, I'm, I don't know. Again, like I said, I have to be in the right headspace to watch it. That's yeah. not me right now. <laughs> <laughs> it's just um, the, the, the saddest part of it is that when you, it, when it hits you that, you know, um, 13, 14 years later, she's still fighting the same garbage to have custody of her children. It's like, and a lot of people say that the reason, a lot of like insiders have said the reason that she is quick to give in to her father and uh, the conservatorship's demands is because they threaten, they threaten her access to her children. And like, as a, like, I'm not a mother, but like, I can sympathize with a mother's intuition to be like, hey, well, I want my children, so I'll give you what you want, you know? Well, how many times have we heard a mother will do anything for her children, right? Like, I I can't imagine being in her position and somebody telling you, do what I want, or you can't see your kids. Mm-hmm. And especially for so long, her kids were her whole life. So I don't, um, you know, I... I just think the whole thing is is crazy. <laughs> and and I think it is important now that it's clear that she's kind of either silently or not so silently fighting back because she said that she will not work, she will not make mu- she will not make new music, she will not do another Vegas residency, she will not tour whatever until her father is no longer in charge of her career. So like I think it's cl- it's clear that she's that she's standing her ground in that. Mm-hmm. Um so maybe like I think before she was obviously giving in to the demands of the conservatorship and, uh, you know, behaving as as they wanted her to. But now she's like, you know what? No. Yeah. And I can only hope that the documentary helps um, helps in her fight as well. I know mm-hmm. she has a lot more support than she did before, even though this was all public knowledge, by the way. <laughs> um, but like you said, I think there's a there's a difference between like reading about it and then seeing it laid out for you the way the documentary does. Mm-hmm. So I can only hope that, you know, things get better for her. I'm just, it's just so depressing. Yes. So, you know, in conclusion, but also free Brittany. Exactly. And I also have to say what I like most about being able to discuss things with you is that you've said to me and I think on the maybe on the podcast before, too, that like you're not a fan of Britney's music, but you still are interested in this aspect of the story. You know, I mean, I don't think. Yeah, I think that also gets lost sometimes. Like, I don't give a shit about Britney because she's just like a teeny bopper pop star. Like, I don't mm, you don't have to be a fan of somebody's music or career or whatever to know right from wrong. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, by the way, 10 year old at any love Britney's music. <laughs> oh, well, there's an important development, ladies and gentlemen. Well, I did saying, not like, know that. I'm saying when I was in elementary school, I'm for sure probably loved Britney's music, but mm-hmm. it's just like, you don't have to be, I, I hate, 
I hate, and I've said this before, I hate when people only advocate for something because they have a stake in it. Yeah. So like, you know, you don't have to be a woman to be a feminist. You don't have to like Britney <laughs> to, to, to be a proponent of her like mental health. You don't have to be part of the LGBTQ community to know that they deserve better. You know what I mean? Like, I hate this thing. Like, if it doesn't affect me, I'm not going to speak up. Exactly. You know, so both in my personal life and other people, other people's lives, you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. this whole mentality, I think we've, we've, it's gotten really bad over the years of this mentality of, well, that doesn't affect me personally. So I, I don't care. Yeah. You know, it's still, you know, and maybe to you, you think like Britney's one person, whatever. No, but I mean, it's just, it, it's bigger than that. Right. Yeah. You know, I think it shows who you are as a person. It really does. I would agree. That's just my my two cents. <laughs> and that's why that's why I love you, and that's why we get along. And, exactly. And <laughs> get along sometimes, you know, not all the time. You guys, no. you guys, you guys, you, you you've heard our bickering, so you know. That's right. You've heard it. <laughs> it's not done. <laughs> Anyways, so that's a thing. Whatever. I'm sure we're gonna have more conversations about this. Um, it's an important subject. And, uh, but for now, let's table it, shall we? Yes. And I will tweet the link to the article that I read. I felt like I might, I might have been reading fast, so I will uh, post it so you all can read at your own pace. Hopefully, I was not speaking gibberish the whole time. No. <laughs> and with that, we shall dive into episode three of season four. The Hobbit, The Sofa, and Digger Styles. I have to admit, until... I was rewatching. I did not recall that was the episode title for episode three at all. I was like, didn't even strike me. I'm like, this is, I've seen this before, this episode title. I was like, this is new to me. (laughs) This is brand new information. (laughs) It it was like Digger Styles is in the episode title. I didn't recall that. Yeah. It's, it's odd that, um, the titles are so wordy. Honestly, it sounds like an episode of our podcast. Like that sounds like a title that you that yeah. you would write for the podcast. Yeah, I'm just gonna steal it this week. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, but yeah, the Hobbit refers to the party that Lorelai and Suki are catering. The sofa refers to Emily redecorating Lorelai's uh, Rory's common room, and Digger Styles refers to Digger Styles. Like, there's nothing else I can say. <laughs> yes. Um. So. Lots to unpack in this episode. Um, do you want to start with Lorelai and Suki? I was going to say the first thing I wrote down in my notes was guilt and Chanel number five. Yeah, smells like guilt and Chanel number five. It's amazing <laughs> to me that Lorelai knew her mother was there like when, when Rory didn't even know. <laughs> <laughs> it's like she knew not even... Maybe the like she could smell a bit of the perfume, but it was almost just like the aura of Emily Gilmore was left behind. It was like there's been a shift in the energy of this dorm room. We need to realign everybody's chakras. No, it was just um again, I think like we said it last uh, well, I said it last week, the writing's been really on. I think this episode that continued. Um mm-hmm. the writing was great. This bit was amazing. Um and it was just so funny because when you find out what actually happened, which is that Emily basically snuck into Rory's dorm room. Mm-hmm. How, by the way, <laughs> how? But anyways, um, and rearranged 
well, basically got rid of the furniture and replaced it with her own furniture. And the, the fact that Lorelai knew before Rory was amazing. <laughs> yeah. And I love the conversation that they're having on the phone also, where Lorelai's not even surprised. <laughs> like, yeah, you win. You win. <laughs> She's like, I knew it, right? So I just, mm-hmm. I think, um, episode-wise, writing-wise, I think the whole thing really came together beautifully this episode. And a lot of great storylines that um, kind of complemented each other. I agree. We can do, So we can dive into um, Lorelai and Suki, if you'd like. Sure. Um, well, there's different parts of the episode. And so Lorelai and Suki are having a conversation about how much the inn is going to cost them. They both don't have an income um, right now. And Suki decides to take a job, a catering job, a party planning job. I don't know. But uh, <laughs> a both, a both job, shall we say. Yeah. So she's going to take care of the food, and Laura is going to take care of the party planning, and it happens to be an eight-year-old Lord of the Rings birthday party. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that whole storyline, for me, I know it was meant to capture the anxiety that new, new-time mothers feel. Yeah. First-time mothers? I said new-time mothers. The first-time <laughs> mothers feel. Same thing. Uh, something like that. Whatever. You know. You know what I meant. Uh, <laughs> Um, but for me, I was just so fucking annoyed. Was it just I have me? to say, um, I wrote in my notes, I was trying to find an, an eloquent way to say this. I don't think there is one. Um, it's just that Suki is, and I think I've said this before in different ways, Suki is a character that really doesn't warrant a lot of deep thought and analysis, because as soon as you put a lot of deep thought into her character, she's such a twat. Like, I can't. <laughs> Well, I wasn't going to go that far. I think Suki has some great moments. But I agree with the argument that she's not meant to be um, this deep character that we gain a lot of insight from. Because especially not because anytime we try to analyze her and Jackson, it's like they're a trash couple. Yeah, we just end up settling on, oh, why these two? Um no, I get it. I get what you're saying. I wouldn't go so far as to say that she's a twat. I also wrote later on in my in my notebook <laughs> when Suki and Lorelai are arguing in the kitchen over the fact that she didn't make any kid food. Mm-hmm. And Suki's like, I'm not stupid. I'm like, yes, you are. Suki is stupid. That's what I wrote in my notes. <laughs> Jesus. Like, okay. Just in this case, I find it's just she's kind of. Like, she does have a meltdown in the end of over not being prepared to be a mother, and we get that that's where this this um, reaction was coming from. But in the moment, like, she's A, she's kind of rude to Lorelai, and Lorelai's just kind of, A, trying to help, but also, B, trying to make her see that kids aren't going to eat this. Yeah, so the thing about this this whole dynamic in this episode is that it makes me really feel bad for Lorelai, because... In my opinion, she's trying really hard to hold it together. Like, mm-hmm. you can tell she doesn't want to overstep. But at the same time, it's a paying gig, the first paying gig, and they need the money. And she's trying to keep everything cool, calm, and collected. And, like, Suki, in this case, is just being, like, so unreasonable. And like, it, comes back, it comes back later once uh, we're jumping ahead. But it comes back later when the inn actually opens and... Uh, Lorelai needs Suki to be there and she has a newborn and like everything's happening and it's all coming together at once and it's too much but yeah. 
she's like like Lorelai has to has to say like I need I need you to be there and be present. I get you have a newborn and that requires you know losing sleep and a lot of time and care, but I need you to not be a flake. And even I'm sorry, even newborn you know newborn or no newborn, Suki is a flake. So yeah, for sure. We we've already established that she's a flake, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think in this episode, so I think Suki's character in general has always been. Um, she's always meant to be a secondary character, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Lane kind of has her own storyline sometimes, and we're we're a little bit more invested in Lane, and we're more invested in a lot of other secondary characters that we are in Suki's. I find Suki on her own as a character is not something that fans of the show, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it's not something, at least me, that I'm super like, oh, I can't wait to see what Suki's up to. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I agree 100%. Like, I, I've said that about Lane. I, you know, I said it last episode of the podcast. I'm like, now I can't wait to see what Lane's been doing. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I have never once said that about Suki. Not to say that Suki's not, you know, important to the show. I think she does bring a lot to the show. But like you said, I don't think she's there for deep analysis, right? No, and, and I think I think that's also part of the reason why later on once Melissa McCarthy became much more famous, it was like, oh yeah, she was on Gilmore Girls, all seven seasons. Yeah. It was a bit of an, oh yeah, that's where she's from, because her character wasn't really all that. I'm not going to say she wasn't an integral part, like you said, she brought a lot to the show and was an important character, but like, in the grand scheme of things, she was a secondary character that didn't require a lot of a lot of thought. No, I absolutely, I agree. And I think that changes a little bit later, um, you know, when the whole dynamic between her and Jackson, they have their argument, and I think she gets a little deeper later. But um, I think that's what they were kind of going for in season four, and especially with the storyline. I think they were trying to give Suki a little bit more of a her own story. Mm-hmm. And I think, like, it fell flat completely. It did. Um, I think even I picture them in the writer's room doing this and then it's aired and they're like, mm, no, <laughs> I just I think I think they realized she was more there as Lorelai's sidekick. She was never going to be anything more. Yeah. Um, whereas, you know, all of Rory's sidekicks, Paris, Lane, um, I'm more invested in them. Right. Yeah. Um, and then part of me kind of wonders, I had this thought of part of me wonders if that's how we perceived um, women like Melissa McCarthy, big women in the two thousands. Like is like we cast the bigger woman as the funny sidekick, the flaky sidekick and never as somebody who could have her own storyline. Yeah. I think it, I think it definitely has a, there's a, there's a part of that. Yeah. I don't think it's all that, but I think cause Melissa McCarthy's hilarious. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but now that you said when Melissa McCarthy started getting famous and everyone was like, oh, well, she was on Gilmore Girls. How did we not know? Well, it's because I think fat women, bigger women, I can say that I'm fat. <laughs> <laughs> Fatter women, bigger women were never really given the opportunity to be their own um, characters in shows like that. Right. Mm-hmm. So, um when she started getting famous and started becoming the main character of all these shows and uh, movies that she was in, people were really surprised. But I think in 2003, it still wasn't really cool and mainstream to have a fat character be, um, 
their own character and really come into their own on the show. Yeah. So I don't think it's all about that, but I do think part of it is that. I think whether she was big or not, she was always meant to be Lorelai's sidekick. But do I think she would have been treated a little bit differently if she was thinner and more beautiful in the eyes of 2003 standards? Absolutely. I think that, and I think the character of Suki was, like you said, intended that way regardless, because mm-hmm. um, as we've said before, I think in season one, um, Alex Borstein was actually originally cast as Suki, and then she wasn't available, so they had so they recast with with Melissa mm-hmm. McCarthy, and I think maybe not so much now with the fame from uh, the Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, but I think in 2000, like Alex Borstein, a wasn't that well-known, and B, kind of also fit that same role of pudgy, uh, quirky, cynical sidekick, you know? Yeah, but the thing is, like, again, what does that say that the two people that they had as options for Suki that we know of were bigger girls, right? They yeah. knew that they were going to be the sidekicks. Mm-hmm. Like, nobody's going to be thinking about them anyways. So I, I think the, the two things kind of played off each other. One, they always knew it was meant to be a sidekick role. So then they, so then that automatically meant they thought of somebody a little bit pudgier. You know what I mean? Yeah. I just think that that's how early 2000 societies thought about things like this. Um, and I would even, I would even go so far as to argue that in the 2010s, when Melissa McCarthy was becoming like a a big movie star, pretty much. Mm-hmm. Um, I would argue that it was, I'm not going to say she alone, but she was one of the people leading the charge in terms of redefining body image standards in mainstream Hollywood movies, I would say, because, um, like for the first, like for the first few movies she did that were big by herself was like Identity Thief and The Heat, which are like hilarious movies and she's great in them. But I remember there was like a lot of shitty commentary and criticism at the time that, oh, well, she's wearing extra padding. She's like making herself more fat. She's like, she needs to be fat to be funny. And like Hollywood can't let people just be. And it was weird because like, I think a lot of the criticism was trying to side with Melissa McCarthy, but it ultimately was just counterproductive because it made it seem like it's her fault that she's not, she doesn't fit the mold. And I think, I think she kind of, single-handedly started to redefine that more or less in her realm because um like she's she's funny regardless of what she looks like so I think I think she's proved that time and time again that doesn't matter what the hell Melissa McCarthy looks like she's funny no matter what yeah but I think that image of a woman can only be funny if she's overweight I think that that idea still persists today Mm -hmm. (laughs) and Because it persists so much, I think a lot of overweight women have kind of made it part of their shtick. I'm thinking of Amy Schumer. Are you thinking of Amy Schumer? (laughs) I'm thinking of Amy Schumer, too. But I'm thinking even in regular life, like my mother and I, my mother and I use weight as a way to kind of be funny, like our own weight. Right. Yeah. Um, I know a lot of overweight women, um, not unhealthy, by the way, (laughs) just overweight women who, um, you know, also do that think to themselves because society has taught them that they're not pretty enough on their own. So they have to kind of make up for it in other ways. Mm -hmm. So we become like the funny girls, you know, because nobody's going to be attracted to us for our looks, skill, but maybe they'll be attracted to us for our personalities. Honestly, as you're talking about that, the only thing I'm thinking of now is Rhoda from the Mary Tyler Moore show in the seventies. Cause that was like, that was Rhoda's entire stick was that, 
she's flamboyant but she's overweight and that's part and like that's part of her charm that's part of her sarcastic wit is that um you know she's never felt good enough because she's been she's always never fit the mold or the body standards and it's like you want you rewatch the show now and the sarc like the sarcasm of her character just is still the best and it still resonates in the same way but you think it's like uh that was overweight in the 70s uh yeah. <laughs> Rhoda was stick thin no matter what you know like it was like, was like <laughs> a twig compared to what anyways whatever and it's just funny how like in the 70s it was you know like they were trying it was like we're trying with the whole weight conscious spunky best friend but it's like you're still thin and you're still white and they tried it yeah. again on the spinoff called Rhoda with uh her sister Brenda and the actress actually did lose weight in between seasons one time and they wrote, ended up writing it into the show that Brenda lost a lot of weight and it was a really good episode actually because she kind of takes back her power and turns down someone who was only now attracted to her because she lost weight and before had n- never like never looked at her before yeah so it was like I think it's that was ahead of its time for the 70s but looking back it's like um you two are still beautiful thin and white so take it down a notch <laughs> Exactly. Anyways, I just, it, it got me really thinking about it. But, but the storyline in general, I was just so annoyed by the fact that, like, have you never been around children? <laughs> like, you don't know that they won't eat something green and you put fruit in their cake? Like, what the fuck? And I think it just bothers me because she's, like, she, Suki is really rude. Like I said, she's rude to Lorelai and she's rude to everybody there. And it's just, like, <laughs> she's... This is not this is not a uh, a place where you cannot accept criticism. Like you're this is not your kitchen at your restaurant where it's your your way of the highway. This is a job you've been hired to do. If they don't like it, they're not gonna get you're you're not gonna get any more work. Like that's yeah, that's how this I works. Think, yeah, I think that's what Lorelai was really trying to tiptoe around because she's also like, okay, so this is my friend. We're about to go into business together, but she clearly doesn't understand that there's boundaries. Like, yes, we're best friends. Like, I think that this is what's going through Lorelai's mind. She's like, yes, we're best friends, but this is also a business and we're getting paid for this. And it's the only money we're getting, like, coming in right now to open our business. So I think um, in that sense, it was a great way to kind of show how Lorelai's tiptoeing around everything mm-hmm. but it just made me want to like punch her <laughs> it really did meaning suki but anyways um those are my thoughts on that um but yeah i i i, I kind of saw what they were trying to do with like trying to give her a more deep storyline it just didn't work and i don't think we get that again until the seventh season where her when her and jackson are arguing yeah i would agree there's just like certain moments and I think I said this before, and I think we even talked about this with our interview with Samantha last year, um, mm-hmm. where it was there's just certain moments where each secondary supporting character, like you want to kill them, and like that's kind of part of the Star's Hollow quirk and charm, where it's they all have their moment where you want to smack them because it's not funny anymore. It's like you're pissing me off, yeah. and this is this is definitely one think, of Suki's. Yeah, I think there's two sides to that though. I think the minute you start recognizing that you want to smack one of your favorite characters is the minute you realize, like, this is a good show with good writing because there are layers, right? For sure. And then on the other hand, you're like, shut the fuck up. (laughs) (laughs) But anyways, um, that's that. that. Um, Let's talk about Emily Gilmore and Rory's whole first week at school. Shopping week. Shopping week. Is that really a thing? Well, 
Well, I never had shopping week, but there's like ad drop period. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know if in, in if in America, the Americas, there's um, a, a such thing as shopping week, but not not as far as I know. In in our world, there's not so much shopping week. You said there's ad there's ad drop. There's also like just the first month where no one knows what's going on. That's pretty much shopping week, I guess. Yeah. I mean, there's a period of time where you can you have a deadline to drop your class basically mm-hmm. and pick up another one, but the the class kind of goes on without you. Right. Yeah. Like I'm personally, I've never, <laughs> never been confident enough to add a class w- after the first weeks. So I'm like, okay, well, I've already missed too much, even though I've probably missed nothing. And if worse came to worse, I would, but even then I'm like, no, no, I've missed too much. It's too late now. Yeah, I know. I've that always caused the, the first week of the semester always caused me so much anxiety because mm. I would go to class and I'd be like, oh, I don't think this is for me. So I'd like log on right away to try and see if there was something else. At what time is it? Can I make it? Like it's just making a schedule for school is the root of all my anxiety. I feel like. Oh yes. <laughs> oh my god. But anyways, I'm glad we're having fun going to our fifty fucking classes. Honestly, um, do you remember if you ever had enough time, energy, or ambition to to try out fifty different classes? Like I admire, I admire her, but I don't have it in me anymore. Fuck that. <laughs> I remember one semester. It was I was taking four classes, and I went to the first one, and I was like, "Oh my god, really not for me." Like I think you wanted us to do like six oral presentations in groups. And I was like, uh, no, no, thank you. <laughs> so then I went to another class like right after that I had heard good things about. And she, too, wanted us to do a paper in group. I was like, OK, I can kind of hack it. But then it was like the paper was worth something ridiculous, like 50 percent of my final grade. And I was like, I don't want to have to rely on a group for that. So bye. I remember I like that was the only real shopping I did where I went to three classes in a row to try and see which one was the best for me. Yeah. That was the most stressed I've ever been. <laughs> So I can't imagine Rory wanting to and loving the fact that she can go to 50 fucking classes. You're, you, you're, you're a psycho, Rory. You're a fucking psycho. I think it's definitely psycho. And also just like, she's so young and inexperienced. Like you have no idea how college works. Do you, honey? Like you're not gonna have. She's gonna learn really quick. (laughs) But yeah, no, I agree with you. I think it's more like. I think she still hasn't gotten the wake-up call of, like, this is not at all, like, high school, my love. I think it takes, actually, a long time for that to sink in for her. Yeah, definitely. And we're going to have a whole, um, there's going to be a whole, like, storyline of her just not hacking it in college. Mm -hmm. And I can't wait to get to that because there's a lot to talk about with her and her anxiety and her overachieving personality. Yeah, I have some thoughts. Yeah, don't we all? Um, but then the other big storyline at Yale is that there's going to be a party, the first party of the semester. And Paris really wants to open her door to participate in the party. And what a difference in Paris from like the Paris we saw in season one, where it was like 10.06 and she's like, ciao, leaving. <laughs> yeah, I know. And now like she really wants to participate. And I think I like the part where Paris is like, nobody knows me here, so I have a chance to kind of reinvent myself. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe not reinvent yourself, but maybe, you know, not be so, like, known to everybody as the stuck-up Paris. And I think you kind of have to wonder if that, that C-SPAN thing still haunts her. 
I think it does, but I think you it's probably like just beneath the surface, you know, like she's trying to work past it. Yeah, but you kind of have to wonder if that whole like nobody knows me no, nobody knows me here thing is more her saying like nobody knows that I did all these fuck ups and I was so high strung and like this is a chance for me to really show them a different side of me. But then she just ends up fucking it up because she's like, I'm not having fun. Everybody out of my fucking room. <laughs> <laughs> Which I'm sorry. That's exactly what I would do. Like, I would oh, I totally would have been the person who's like, I'm in. I'm going to do it. And you know what? No, fuck off. Get out. Like, Rory going into her room to read during the party is peak Eleni. <laughs> <laughs> I've done that. I've done that at family events, by the way. Um, you just need to recharge sometimes. Especially not with your, especially not with your family. Yeah, well, that's another issue. But, like, I'm not down sometimes, and I just need a minute or, like, ten of quiet, please. And then I can come back out. But, um, yeah, that whole thing was, like, I understand. I I commend Paris for kind of wanting to put herself out there. Mm -hmm. And I also, uh, you know, can understand Rory's reluctance. In the end, I'm glad they do it. Yeah. But you can tell they're both, like, way out of their comfort zone. And I would like to also bring up that I hate the con the whole concept of you're 18, sleep when you're dead. Yeah, no, that's that's, that's a bullshit mentality that's killing people. And for sure. Um, <laughs> but I, I also think like I I relate to obviously Paris and Rory wanting to at least try it and put themselves out there. Mm-hmm. But it's like to me, it was from my perspective, it was always like other adults only saw me as like liking alone time and needing to be by myself all the time and they wanted to like get me out of my shell and whatever and blah and I think every introvert has has some version of that story um but it's just I think it's really toxic when you try to force someone to try something that that you that they probably know is not their thing and it's just but then you force them to try it and force them to think that well maybe it could be your thing like you're 18 like isn't that everyone's saying it's like no, you're 45. Do you do all 45 year olds like PBS? Like I don't know. You know, it's <laughs> PBS. You're so funny. Um, <laughs> no, but I get that because I think so. I understand Lorelai's point of view in telling her try it. You might like it because my mom's been that mom a lot. Yeah. Um, but I think parents really have to listen, or anyone really just really has to listen to the person because at the end of the day, you know you like nobody else knows you. <laughs> mhm. So if I say like, no, I really don't want to go because I know or do it or whatever it is because I know myself and I'm not going to like it. I think it's really important to listen to that Um, and know when to stop pushing the person. Right. Yeah. And listen, if the person ends up having like I've had it where I've been like, oh, maybe I should have gone, you know, that that fades. okay? FOMO, you like you you look you learn to look at it in the rear of your mirror. Like it for me, it's still yeah. present, but you learn to like ignore it. <laughs> but that's the thing. We've talked about that before. Yeah, okay, maybe you might feel a little bit of regret, but at the end of the day, fuck it. <laughs> you know, like you know you better, and I guarantee you, you're gonna feel better. You're gonna feel better knowing that you kind of trusted your gut in that moment mm-hmm. than saying like, oh, but what if I miss something? Cool? No, fuck it. Okay, you know yourself better than anyone. <laughs> I think it took me a long time to learn that because any like I think the whole pur- the whole purpose of you know adults trying to push me to, to do things and try thing try new things was coming from a coming from a nice coming from a a, a nice place obviously yeah. um, but I think it like I think it caused 
a bit of an identity crisis where it's like, well, I don't even know what I like. Like, what do I like? Do What should I do? You know, and then it took me a long time to realize, like, no, um, I like being by myself and reading books, yeah. so yeah. leave me alone. Yeah, and I think the problem is also the fact that people don't see reading books and being by yourself as they don't understand how that can be a thing. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. nobody's ever told a skydiver to, like, sit home and read a book because maybe you might like it. You know what I mean? Like, nobody's ever done that. No, it's always the other way around. It's always, like, so this, you, know, you never recommend introverted introverted activities. It's always extroverted. Like you said, you don't recommend to a skydiver to sit home and read. You, might you don't like recommend it, to anybody. It's like, maybe sit home and read a book. Maybe you might like it. Like, yeah, no. Make yourself a cup of tea. Like, nobody's ever fucking said that to, like, a safariist, you know? <laughs> But everyone always tells me that. <laughs> mm. So, yeah, I think a lot of it also has to do with just the way we see, the way society sees, um, like, activities of solitude. You know, yeah. in my family especially, like, nobody understands how I can have fun knitting. <laughs> like, my brother called me the other day. He's like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm knitting. But what else are you doing? I'm like, I'm fucking knitting. That's a thing. Like, That's it? And I'm like, why do I have to be juggling plates at the same time? <laughs> But anyways, so yeah, I think, and we've had this discussion before, this um, obsession with extroverted activities and extroverts in general, it needs to stop, okay? And I think like extrovert, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, this is is my opinion, Um, I think extroverted adults of like of a certain age, you know, who's kind of, they think they're like, they're past their prime and they have to, you know, watch younger 18, 18 to 20 year olds you know begin their lives in the same way it's like adults like that kind of are made uncomfortable by 18 year olds who are sure of themselves in the way that rory is sure of herself and that she likes to read as opposed to to have a party Mm -hmm. so like i've i think i learned that the hard way whereas like other adults in my family were just made on maybe not made uncomfortable by but like were annoyed by the fact that I <laughs> knew what I liked at a young age and I that was acting like I was older, you know? So anyway, everyone has everyone just called me an old man since I was little, so it's just but how I think it is. We also, have to, we also have to let go of the fact that things things that you don't understand, like that's not the other person's problem. Mm-hmm. Right? So the fact that my brother, for example, it's not he doesn't understand how knitting could be exciting for me. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like that's not my issue. That's your issue. Yeah. Like, cause I'm okay with it. You're not okay with it. It's not my job to make you be okay with what I'm doing with my life. Right. Right. And I think a lot of people have a very hard time with that, but that I can get into maybe later with Jeffrey alone. Cause that's yeah. um, or in therapy or in therapy with a qualified therapist. <laughs> but yeah. Um, so, you know, I'm glad they tried, but clearly not for them. <laughs> um, and then we have the introduction of some new characters. Yes. Um, the Gabor twins. <laughs> I wasn't even thinking of them, but yes. <laughs> but no, there's them, but they're insignificant. And then we have Marty. Marty. So the first appearance of Marty, um, first in one of Rory's shopping classes. Mm-hmm. And second, um, in the nude <laughs> in her hallway. She also notices him uh, 
I think in the hallway, clothed during the party before yeah. Hamlet, but doesn't say anything to him. Yeah. So do you think it's fair to say that some people just by like this first episode of Marty would be like, oh, new love interest? I think so. I don't think even the first time I watched it, I thought love interest. I thought like new character. I didn't. I don't think I ever thought love interest. I don't know why. Interesting. Interesting. Like mm, even now, I know. Mean, I, I think even when I watched it for the first time, I never thought love interest. I think it was just new character. Okay, that's that's fair. That's fair. Um, I don't know. I think the way they set it up, some people might have been like, oh, maybe you know. Oh, for sure. Now I see it. But even, I, I don't know, maybe it's just something about his character. I have no idea. Because he only, he, only, he only speaks at the end when he's naked. So yeah, it's hard to tell. How did this even happen, by the way? I was going to say, do we ever find out how Marty ended up passed out naked on the floor? How do you lose your clothes? I'm, I've lost uh, a lot of shit in my life. I've never lost my pants. <laughs> like, maybe he got really drunk and passed out and someone stole his clothes. They undressed him? Yeah, could happen. Well, get out of here. Or, like, he was really, really drunk and some idiots convinced him to derobe. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> I mean, there's theories. But, I mean, I've never lost my pants, so I don't understand. <laughs> um, I don't think either of us would be, would be in a situation where we could lose our clothes. <laughs> that's another thing. Um, but, yeah, I've never lost my, my pants, my shirt, my underwear, whatever. Um, and then moving on to Richard and Emily's little storyline this episode. So we haven't seen them. Um, well, we saw them in the first episode, but we didn't see them last episode. Mm -hmm. Um, but they're back. And it's the introduction of Jason Stiles, or Digger. I was gonna say, first appearance of Digger. Digger. Um, and... I don't know. I get weird vibes in this episode. Maybe it's because I know what happens later, but I already get like tension between Richard and Emily. Yeah. Like I already feel that Richard's kind of disengaged when he comes home and he's like, I'm tired and I just want to drink. And she's like trying to get him to talk. And he's like, yo, just go away. <laughs> like, you know, I already feel him kind of pulling away. Mm -hmm. And like I said, maybe that's just me knowing what happens later, but I already kind of get the tension. And then afterwards, when Richard is telling Emily that he's going into business with Digger because he wants to stick it to his father, and Emily gets so upset, mm -hmm. I'm like, is this the beginning for them? <laughs> like, of the it beginning was. of the rift? I really think so. Like, I think it was the beginning of Emily kind of shutting, like, both of them kind of shutting each other out. Like, Richard shuts her out in terms of disengaging emotionally which is I mean how emotionally involved was he anyway first of all yeah. um but I think Emily also has been trained in her role as his wife to just turn a blind eye to business decisions she disagrees with because it's not her place to say anything mm -hmm. so I think that for sure begins like Emily not standing up for herself or voicing her concerns I think is the beginning of tension for sure yeah so I saw it a little bit differently I, I agree with you but I think um you know when he's telling her he's going into business with Digger and she like objects to the fact that he's only doing this basically to get back at his father I think that's also the beginning of their um demise shall we say 
Mm -hmm. Only because I think for the first time, it's really, like you said, the first time that Emily kind of sticks her nose where she hasn't before. Like, it's it's her, it's the first time she's really, she's always kind of been like, Richard is the business guy and I'm just the housewife and fuck it. Like, I'm good with these roles. And it's Mm -hmm. the first time I think that she's really lent her opinion to that. So I think, number one, I don't think Richard really appreciates it. Yeah. And like all all their lives, they've they've been in their roles and they've been fine with their roles. And he's always been the provider. So he's always done a really good job at that. And now she's all of a sudden telling him like his judgment isn't clear. So Mm -hmm. I think that's where his resentment starts. And I think for her, I had a thought (laughs) for her. I think she's so upset by Richard's decision to go into business with this man because of Lorelai. And I'll tell you why. Oh, please. I want to know. So, obviously, can you imagine? End of episode. No. <laughs> I don't give a shit about you or your opinions. Bye. Bye. <laughs> no. So, I think I think for me, um, when Emily real, when Emily is told that, that Digger only wants to go into business to stick it to his dad, for me, that's, in Emily's mind, that's something that Lorelai would do. Mm-hmm. And so, she's like... I can't let I can't let my husband do this because that's kind of like condoning the way Lorelai treats us. Do you see what I mean? Interesting. I've never thought of that before. So, like, and it might be a stretch. Don't get me wrong. But I, no, you know, that, that really no, that adds up. Yeah, because like Lorelai's done things in the past just to spite her mother, right? Mm. That's kind of her whole shtick, and vice versa, by the way. Also, let's be honest, but. Yeah, so for me, it was more like Emily seeing it, being the outside person and seeing it for once being done to somebody else. It didn't sit well with her because she knows that that's that's their dynamic with Lorelai. Yeah. So she's like, you're condoning this behavior. And you're also being petty. And it just I think it just for her, it just didn't sit well, because before that she was on board. Right. Yeah. But then when she realized that, she's like, oh, fuck. So I think a part of Emily now in this episode has a little mini epiphany. Yeah. Where she's kind of like reevaluating her relationship a little bit with her daughter and what it says about them as parents. Don't get me wrong. I don't think it goes far. <laughs> no. But I think that little seed has been planted and it doesn't sit right with her. And they both kind of butt heads over it. So him, because he doesn't like the fact that she's not in her place and voicing her opinions about his business dealings and her because she doesn't like the decision he's taken and what it says about them as parents. Yes. And that's see. very interesting. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. I would. So like, I agree for sure that um, Emily sees a bit of Lorelai in that decision to stick it to his parents. Mm-hmm. But it, I would also think that that, adds that really adds up because um it kind of gives emily and lorelei this chance to connect throughout the season which they do so it makes sense that in that moment where she kind of feels disconnected from her husband and their roles as parents because of everything that's happened with lorelei over the years i think it i think that causes a bit of like you said an epiphany in emily to then try harder with lorelei which i think we see a little bit later on in season four so that makes sense and then the ulti- the you know penultimate 
conclusion ends up being that um, Lorelai sides with her family over Digger, and that's something that Emily wouldn't, I don't think, would have predicted. So that, that's yeah. a very interesting take on your part. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> I also had a mini epiphany. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so I thought that was, you know, I don't remember it that way when I, you know, when I've seen it in the past, but now I guess 47 times a term. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, that's the thing. You learn something new every time you watch the show. Just like when we were first rewatching season one for our season one of the podcast, and you tweeted that picture, that screenshot of Lorelai's living room, saying like, <laughs> "Watch rewatching Gilmore Girls for the ninety second time." Why does Lorelai have six lamps in her living room? Oh my, so many lamps! Just buy an overhead light, you idiot! <laughs> you waste more electricity like that. Just saying. <laughs> I think it's I think it's fictional. Yeah, obviously. <laughs> um, um, also, we get a small glimpse of Lane in this episode, but not enough for my liking. No, she's like split second, not even a full five seconds, I don't think. But I do have to say, I like the fact that we get a little teeny tiny glimpse into her college life. Yeah. And it sounds as ridiculous as I imagined it would be. <laughs> so apparently Lane wore a bracelet to her first day of class and a church service was um, organized to kind of deal with the aftermath. And see, I don't think, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't know if this is how you felt uh, when you first watched season four, whenever that was, Grandma, 5,000 years ago. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> if, like, when you watched season four, did you think that Lane forcing herself to attend this terrible college that's not the right fit for her did you think that it was ultimately going to lead to the blow up that happens between her and Mrs. Kim midway through the season? Like, I don't like I never predicted that happening. I think we all kind of got used to Lane being the rebel, but also subservient Korean daughter who would rebel, but not so much that Mrs. Kim would actually take notice. So I think it was when we finally reached that um what's the word I'm looking for that climax when thing you know shit shit goes down actually for the like for the real first time between Lane and Mrs. Kim it's super satisfying because I didn't ever predicted that that would actually happen that way so I didn't predict that it would go down like that um but what I think what I think um I thought back then was that especially as the episodes go on and we, we get more kind of insight into what uh, Lane is going through in college. Mm-hmm. For me, it was more like something's got to give, like sh- they can't just have Lane, you know, going with what Mrs. Kim wants all the time. I knew there was going to be some kind of break again, yeah. because, because Lane is a character that we're more invested in as her own character Mm-hmm. I knew there was going to be something, but I didn't think it would manifest itself in the way that it did, not to give away too much <laughs> um, of a show that ended 13 years ago. But, uh, <laughs> no, but I mean, like, I didn't think it would go down the way it did. But I, 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 I realized pretty quickly um, in season four that something was going to happen. 
Um, yeah. Either an argument, Mrs. Kim would kind of give in, maybe realize that, you know, I didn't, I didn't know what to expect, but I knew it was going to be something. And I thought like, it's about time too, right? Um, yeah. Because especially if you're moving forward with a show of, you know, you've seen these characters through high school and now they're kind of going like kind of dipping their toe into adulthood. Um, we forget sometimes that Lane and Roy are the same age, right? Yeah. So they were raised differently, of course, but they're the same age. So at a certain point, you kind of got to leap into that adulthood. And of course, it's going to look different for Lane than it does for Rory. But, you know, you can't. I, no, it wasn't feasible to say like I couldn't find my words it wasn't feasible to say that lane was going to carry on for the rest of her life living the way mrs kim wanted her to live eating like fucking raw barley and drinking mouth piss tea you know what i mean like it's just are you okay did you say mouth piss tea yeah it just came out (laughs) i thought you were gonna say like cucumber water (laughs) they never drink cucumber water by the way just but you know what I mean? Like, fucking... Mouse-pissed tea. Oh, episode title, ladies and gentlemen. Mouse-pissed tea? I'm going to take you up on that. Uh, oh, sure. That's the one you take. That's fact. the one I pick, yeah. <laughs> but anyways, so I kind of knew there was going to be something, but I, I don't know if I would have um, given myself that much credit to say that I knew what it would be. Mm-hmm. But I knew there had to be something. Something's got to give. I think it was, well, we should leave it when we actually talk about leave that, it. because I think we've talked about Lane in that part of her story several times before even getting there. So I think we'll no. we'll leave it. But that is one of my favorite parts of the season. So Yeah, and we need to, I think we also need to do it justice. So talking about it in vague, abstract terms is not helping anyone. Yeah. Uh, but when we get there, it's going to be something, because I also have a lot of thoughts. I've already started jotting down my thoughts for that, by the way. <laughs> Good. So, um, you know we'll uh we're gonna do it <laughs> anything else you want to talk about in this episode um we also see madeline louise for a brief yeah. moment and i always forget that they show up here too as well as on spring break we see them twice yeah. um it's so significant they... here and it's so weird because like i think yes madeline louise occupied comedic like a, a comedic relief spot in the first three seasons but i think i wouldn't have been sad if i if we hadn't seen them again after that like it's nice that they brought them back these two times in season four but i think after that it's like they've served their purpose yeah much like suki they were never meant to be their own characters <laughs> they're but right. i would i would argue that even madeline louise probably have more interesting backstories and or character arcs than suki half the time oh i would love to hear about louise having thanksgiving dinner with her prison father in a fucking trailer right after a conjugal visit <laughs> madeline oh. louise deserve their own spinoff you but guys. you know but but it, it it's it goes i mean I know it seems ridiculous, but it really fits into what we were saying of like, it's a crazy how these characters, the skinny characters are more interesting than a character who's been there for seven seasons. Skinny characters, that's a good distinction. Like, I don't give a fuck about Suki. Like, even when Suki and Jackson's family comes in for the baptism, like later on in season six, I really don't give a fuck. No, and they're fucking weird, too, so... Yeah, well, that's... But even when Suki... Remember when Suki mentioned the magic risotto that she made on her mother's deathbed and she lived three more years? I've never thought to myself, hmm, I need more. (laughs) 
Like, it's even, true, though. But even, remember in season three where she meets the guy Joe that she hasn't seen in so long and they're talking about, like, themselves working at that inn with a guy who locked himself in the freezer? Like, never have I wanted to learn more about that. I'm a whore. Yeah, that too. <laughs> but, I mean, you know what I mean? It's crazy. It's crazy. Yeah. And I don't know if the writers knew that they were even doing that. I think it's sad because on the surface, you're like, everyone's like, oh, we love Suki. Ha ha, cute. No, it's like, but like anytime we, you give it actual deep thought, it's mm, no. No, come on. I know everyone says we love Suki and I get it and I've been there. But guys, like, we're going to do a poll. Be honest. Have you ever wanted to learn more about Suki's life, even when she's giving you these small little tidbits? I guarantee you the no's are going to win. Honestly, I don't even know, because I find, like, is at least in terms of our social media following, I find that a lot of people are only casual viewers at best and don't give it as much thought as we do, so I would, I would, I might think it would be either more yes or split. Okay, well, the diehard fans are with me. <laughs> okay, yes, for sure. No, like, ugh, I don't know, and it's just, it's all coming out of me now, because I'm like, isn't that so fucking sad? It is. <sighs> Anyways. Where can they follow us, Jeffrey? Don't make me do it again. Um, they can follow us on Twitter at Gilmore Podcast, where we went viral last week, by the way. We did go viral last week. <laughs> um, they can follow us on Instagram at Gilmore Girls Podcast, where we've recently reached uh, 10,000 followers, which was crazy. So thank you for that. And if you would like to uh, email us with love letters, anything of that nature, uh, gilmorepodcast at gmail.com. We love getting mail, as you know. We do. Do we have a bracket update? Yeah, we have a bracket update. I will pull it up right now if um, my iPod doesn't die on me. (laughs) Hurry, hurry, hurry. So... The bracket updates is um, 513-1, so the wedding episode one. As it should have. Yeah, versus that stupid fucking prodigal daughter returns, you little shits. Little shits. That was never going to win. <laughs> never. I wouldn't have let it. I would have rigged it. <laughs> oh, my God. No, I'm kidding. Um, yeah, but it's clearly the better episode, you guys. Come on. And so next episode matchup is 703 The Cotillion versus 719. It's just like riding a bike. Mm, I know you hate season seven, but we got I was going to say. Some episodes are not terrible. I think I'm indifferent, but I'd probably say The Cotillion episode. Yeah, because it's nice to see Lorelai having fun. Even then, most of these, like, honestly, we'll, we'll get to this. But, like, I'm very indifferent to season seven more so than season six season six just pisses me off whereas season seven is just out of touch with the rest of the show for reasons that we will soon get to okay we'll leave it at that (laughs) thank you for listening as always take care we'll see you next week bye